morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I hope you're feeling fine. Get up, get up, get out of bed. Get up, get up, sleepy head. Good morning, you may be seated. Are you awake? My mother used to sing that song to me early in the morning after she licked my face. Yes, with morning breath all over it. I was lovely. It was a lovely way to get up. You know, I just find it, I love church. I love church, but I love this church. Do you know why I love this church? Because God loves this church. God loves his church everywhere, but I just think God has favourites sometimes, and God loves this church. Why does God love this church? Because this church hears the heartbeat of God and is going out and finding his people that are lost and bringing them home. Not only are we finding people that are lost and bringing them home, then we're allowing them to be defined and to find their purpose and their God-given destiny in this earth for their lifetime. It's one thing to get someone saved. It's another thing to make disciples and send them out and get them doing the work of the Lord. And that's my passion, to see that happen. You know, some wonderful people get saved in this church and I think it's important that we meet them, get to know them, get to know what they're about, what their hearts are and what their passion is so you know as you sow into this house actually what the fruit is that's coming out. So I want you to meet someone this morning. She's my new friend, probably new daughter in the Lord actually. Been saved two weeks and I just wanted to share this morning with us. Come up, Sarah. This is Sarah Brown, not the Sarah Brown, the other Sarah Brown. We have two Sarah Browns that oh, we know. Yeah. I'm number two. Number two. But yeah. no, you're number one to God. Yeah. Hello, church. It's great to be here. Um, okay, well, Pastor Julie asked me just to share a little bit about myself, and I promised. I wouldn't go over three minutes because I have a habit of talking way too much. Um, okay, so just a little bit about me. I'm actually a chiropractor um, and my background's as an academic, so I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, lots of science, so my whole background has been science, but always um, searching for some sort of truth. So I started doing research into quantum biophysics, looking into the nature of reality and, and where we come from and where we're going and what the meaning is and just always getting this sense you hit this dead end and you go, oh, okay. And then you try doing things like um, psychics and astrology and crystal healings and you sit there and go, hmm, am I enlightened yet? No, not yet. Um, <laughs> And you realize that you go, this is, I can't find a sense of purpose. I just can't find a sense of meaning. And then you realize that God brings these amazing people into your life. And the one guy I met, he's not here this morning because he's at work, um, Stephen McDonald. I met him and we, we became really, really good friends, started talking. And then we started talking about God one day when we were at Hog's Breath Cafe over dinner. And just the series of events that happened after that and these amazing little coincidences that were happening in my life. And I went, okay, I've got to go try church. You know, he was saying, look, come to church, come to church. It's really good. 
So I came and then Steve and I were talking for ages and ages and I was putting all these scientific questions to him and, and he was really good. He had all these answers coming back at me. And he goes to me, Sarah, I honestly don't know. I, I don't know how I came up with the answer. I think it was God talking through me. Yeah. But then I came here and it was just the most amazing experience. And when I decided to, to commit my life, I went... Since then, the last two weeks have been probably the most amazing weeks of my life. Um, just things happening and people I meet, the patients that I see, just miracles that are happening to them because I pray that the Holy Spirit will be with them. And I, like I was almost in tears, you know, with some of my patients. I'm just, oh my goodness, what's happening? Um, tithing, just things that are happening in my life, like like money coming in from all these weird places and. I'm going, oh my goodness. But at the end of the day, with the research that I'm doing, like I wanted to, for me, I love inspiring people. Like I love teaching people how to find the best in themselves. And so through the research I was doing, I wanted to help people to find out, well, what is the meaning of our life? What's our purpose? And then once I realized that the way that you connect with your purpose is through Jesus. And that's... You know, when, I, when it finally hit me, and I was like, oh my goodness. And I'll tell you what, the stuff I've read in the past two weeks, the stuff I've written in the past two weeks is just phenomenal. I, I sit there and go, where did that come from? Like, that must have come from God. It didn't come from me, you know. So I just want to say I'm so excited to be here. I'm like, I'm almost in tears. <laughs> that's great, that's great. And you guys are just amazing. And I really just want to help inspire so many other people because, like, I found in my heart what my purpose is and what I'm here for. So church rocks! <laughs> You're amazing. She's coming up with all these amazing answers to her scientific friends. And one of them was, doesn't science say that everything has to have an origin? And, and she's realized that the origin of all things is God. In the beginning, there was God. God is the origin. And so it's, it's just profound. So she wants, to be, she wants to be equipped. She's writing. She has been writing, um, you know, uh, uh, what do you call them, lectures. She lectures at university and um, she's been writing and she wants to write and really attack the whole thing of creation versus evolution and get the, get the facts right. So I want to bless her in that. You know, and I just think it's astounding. There is God in heaven and he's looking down and there are incredible people like Sarah all over this earth waiting to be found. Just waiting to be released. Just waiting for an encounter with Jesus Christ so their life gets defined and in place and there's something inside of them, something inside people that I'd like to call this morning holy discontent, where they have a holy discontent inside of them that needs answers and needs expression. And when they find the source of Jesus Christ, then they find a channel by which that holy discontent can come forth and out and do incredible things upon the face of the earth. That all of us here today should have that kind of holy discontent inside of us, or at least we did at one stage, or it may be so deep down that we haven't allowed it to surface as yet, because God, I believe, places holy discontent in every human being. That we know that we are just here 
for a little while. We're passing through. We don't really belong here. There's a discontent in us for all the wrong that we see. And there's something inside of us that wants to make it right. Is that, is that understandable? So I was thinking about what motivates people. What motivates people to do the things that they do? What motivates people to volunteer their time, to give their money, to give their service to churches, to organizations, and to help uh, human beings? Bill Hybels, he did this study, and uh, on this study he just, why do people do what they do? And he says, in a given year, this is in America, mind you, in a given year it is estimated that American adults, oh, thanks, Lisa, thanks, that was beautiful, you can sit down now, thanks, sweetheart. So I'm going to go into a different mode now. In a given year, it is estimated that American adults volunteer roughly, listen to this, 20 billion hours of their time per year. American adults volunteer. The annual dollar value of all that time is about uh, $225 billion that America would have to pay out if they didn't have the volunteer force that they do in the states for the things that need to be done. If you add that figure to the amount of cash that is given to worthy causes every year, it gets pretty interesting, doesn't it? Don't you think that's amazing? And that's just in America. I think Australians are a lot more generous. I think, you know, you, you look at the shows that are on TV right now and, you know, these, these reality shows, they want to go and help this cancer patient, they want to fix that house up, we want to do this for that person. There's something inside of us as human beings, and I think particularly as Aussies, when I say Aussies, if you've come from other nations to Aussies, you're Aussie, you're under this culture, under this nation, and that thing's going to get on you. And, and I think that, you know, we, we are yet to understand this capacity of volunteering, volunteering our time, our money, and that great resource that that is. You know, if you want to know why people do the things they do. I, said, I talked about before this holy discontent. I want to just look at the life of Moses right now in the book of Exodus. Have you got a picture of him up there? We've still got words, songs, song words. and There he is. Stunning man. Stunning. Now, I guess, you know, put, you, most people have sort of seen the movie Ten Commandments, kind of know the background of Moses. Hey, so here's Moses. Um, he's, he's born in a time when the leaders of that day have seen the Israelites just flourishing, flourishing. The Hebrews are just flourishing everywhere. God is blessing them and they're multiplying like this church and they just can't stop them multiplying. They're multiplying and they're outgrowing the Egyptians in number and they want to stop this. They've got to stop this. So they start to put this thing in place that says all the male sons, when the midwives, when the Egyptian midwives go to help deliver the Hebrew sons, that they're to kill them straight away. You know, as soon as they come out, kill them. And the Egyptian midwives had a fear of God. And they said, well, we're not going to touch these Hebrew children. So they decided that they're not going to touch them. So they lied to Pharaoh. And the, the, the sons, they kept multiplying, they kept multiplying, they kept multiplying. And, God, and it says that God actually blessed them. Those Egyptian women end up with houses of their own because God says, you bless mine, I'll bless you. There was an incredible exchange there. And so 
Here we have these, this growth that keeps happening and then so Pharaoh freaks out and, and, and there's this whole thing going up to Ramses and all this sort of stuff and he goes, we've got to stop this growth now. So I'm passing a law that every male child that is born, the parents have to throw it into the Nile and drown it. Hebrew child. Imagine that. And so the law is that you've got to take your male child, you can keep your females, but if you, you've got a male child, you've got to throw it in and, uh, and, and drown it. And so the parents of Moses, they get Moses, they see he's beautiful, they see there's something of God on this child, they see a destiny, and they put him in a basket, and they, they, with the blessing of God, they sail him down the Nile River. They don't drown him. They just send him towards his destiny as a brand new infant baby, trusting God. He ends up with Pharaoh's daughter. She raises him in the Egyptian household, raised as an Egyptian, but knowing that he's a Hebrew. Right? So that's where we are. So I want to pick up the story there and we're going to go to Exodus 2, 11. And it says this. One day after Moses was grown, it happened that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. What happened was like he's, he's been brought up in this culture, this, this place where he's been sheltered from a lot of stuff. And he really hasn't even seen the suffering of his brethren. Even though they're his brothers and sisters, they're his family, they're his people, they're out there, they're slogging it away, they're making bricks for Pharaoh, they're getting beat, they're getting whipped, they're dying young. It's been like this for 400 years in slavery. And he's in the palace living it up, doesn't even look out the window. But then it says one day, one day, see, One day when he was grown, it happened that he went out to have a look. And he's walking amongst his people. And he's seeing the slavery firsthand for the first time. He's looking into the eyes of people that are part of him. And he's seeing the oppression. He's seeing the the terrible torture that they're under. He's seeing the starvation, the poverty, the long hours they work in, the beating hot sun. He's seeing them being whipped. He can't handle it. He's freaking out. There's this holy discontent that starts to rise up inside of him when he sees this happening. He has all this here where he should be content, but something of discontent starts to stir up inside of him. And then he sees an Egyptian start to really beat into a Hebrew and I don't know, have you ever seen anyone beat up? I mean, have you, ever, have you ever witnessed someone be beat up? I have. And I tell you what, it really rocks you. It really rocks you when you see someone just, I'm not talking about, you know, just you know, slapping them up the side of the head. I'm talking about beating. I'm talking about beating someone till they're black and blue and big face like this and blood pouring off them and you can hear the sounds of the bones crunching. And Moses is standing there watching this. And he just can't stand it. And suddenly this holy discontent rises up inside him like a, like a fire. And he just, I can't stand this anymore. And he, and he, you know, he takes it into his own hands and he goes and he... No, I don't want Popeye, thanks. No. Yeah. Anyway, he's just got my... Yeah, it's all right. Gone to my punchline. Anyway... Um, so he, he gets this Egyptian and he, and, he, and he beats him, but he accidentally kills him. So he buries the Egyptian in the sand and he goes back to his 
nice place. But something's happened to him. He can't stay in this palace now as if nothing's wrong. He's seen something. He's felt something. There's a holy discontent stirring inside him. So the very next day he goes to have another look. He can't help himself. He's got to go back. And when he goes back, this time he sees a Hebrew beating a Hebrew. And now he's really upset. And he screams, what are you doing? Isn't it bad enough that the Egyptians are beating you, but you've got to beat each other? And he sees these people and he sees them imploding. He knows that his people are imploding now. They've had enough. They can't take anymore. It's so overwhelming to him. And they said to him, who do you think you are? You can't do anything about it. You're the prince of Egypt. You're some fancy guy. You can't help us. And he frustrated and he screams and he doesn't know what to do. And he runs and he, it says he runs and runs and he goes and sits by a well. Just sits down. He's seen this stuff and he sits down. And while he's sitting there, he meets these people and um, starts to get pulled into this family and becomes a shepherd and... And it says this interesting thing here in Exodus. um, Just find it for you. I can't find it right now, but it says it says this interesting thing. It says that he is with his family, and he's you know he's, he's a shepherd. And he sat down for so long and it says, and he became content. And I just think that is so amazing. You know, that after this, just after seeing, after experiencing this, this feeling inside of him, being frustrated that he can't do anything about it, he goes, he sits down, decides he's not going to do anything about it, and he becomes content. And while he's there being content... Something's happening in heaven. Something's stirring in God. And he says here, it says here, in verse 24 to 24, and God heard their sighing and groaning and earnestly remembered his covenant. Something was happening where God was looking down now and he's going, come on, you know, where is the man? Where is the one? Where is someone who actually cares about what I care about? Where is the person? And so, the, you know, Moses is there in the desert and this burning bush appears. And a lot of people think that Moses got called at that burning bush. No, Moses got called when he saw. The holy discontent inside of him was his calling. He just didn't know how to act it out. And so the burning bush was the how-to. And so at that burning bush, he's there in the burning bush, and God says, take off your shoes, it's holy ground, and I want to speak to you, Moses, I want to speak to you. And he says, and God says this to Moses, I have also heard the cries of my people. He didn't say, I've heard the cries of my people. He said, I have also heard. In other words, you've heard something, Moses. I know it. I know you've heard. I know you've seen. I know there's a holy discontent inside of you. And I want to tell you this, Moses. If you will dig down, if you will allow 
the, the, the grief and the pain that's inside of me to stir up the pain inside of you, the holy discontent inside of you. If we just join forces right now, if you would just partner with me right now, Moses, we can do something about this. Because I see in you, I see in you an activist. I see in you a spokesman. He goes, God, I can't even speak, but I see a spokesman. Because I reckon that passion in you, that holy discontent is so strong inside of you that it will just go past your personality. It can just withstand anything. It can withstand any ridicule. This thing inside of you, you felt the pain of my people. And if you'll just connect with me, we can partner together. He says, I'm so stirred in my spirit, Moses, that I've decided to intervene and I've looked across the earth for someone who feels the way I feel and I've found you. And if you'll just go, Moses, I will be with you and you will set the captives free. You see, that holy discontent, that, that's, that's inside all of us. And as you saw on the screen right then, um, Bill Hybels calls it the Popeye moment. Now, don't put it up yet. Although you already did. But wait. There's more. And it isn't steak night. Popeye was someone that we watched as kids. Put up your hand if you remember Popeye. Oh, so many people. He was popular, Popeye. And of course, Popeye was a funny looking guy. He kind of had one eye like this and a little pipe. And, you know, he smoked a pipe and he's supposed to be telling kids to eat spinach. Didn't make sense. But anyway, had this pipe like this and he had an unusual structure, Luke. He wasn't pumped at the top. He just had these forearms. He didn't have like this going on the chest. He was kind of just had these big forearms. And so he was just the meek, mild person. Popeye was very content. He was content to just let olive oil, the love of his life, shine, this skinny bean pole with a funny sausage nose. And he just content to let her shine and just hang in the background and not really be noticed. He was quite content until something stirred this discontent in him if anyone touched olive oil. If anything was going wrong with olive oil, then he would rise up and he would say this, now would be good. That's all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. That's what he used to say. And he would then eat his spinach, and his forearms would go bigger, and he would wind it up, and poof, whoever was in the way. And he would defend olive oil. And I, I thought that was amazing. Like Bill Heibel says, the holy discontent inside of you says, that's all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. And you don't need to go eat spinach. You need to get with God and find out what you need to do with your holy discontent. That's why people devote their vocational lives, their volunteering energies, their hard-earned money. That's why they give so much because they've, they've discovered they've got a holy discontent and they want to fix things. They want to make it right. There's a boy... Just put normal up there now, thanks. There's a boy in... Um, uh, a local high school, I can't tell you which high school it is, I can't tell you his name, um, he's not saved, he's not a Christian. But at 14 years old, he started to look at his life. He came from an alcoholic, drug, abusive family, 
and realised at 14 that he was getting drunk all the time, that he was taking drugs, that he was going down exactly the same road as his parents. And so this kid decided that he was going to take a stand and that he was going to go straight. And so he just wrote on his MySpace page, I'm going straight. I don't want to go the way my parents have gone. I'm going to make, I want to make a difference in my life. I want to do it different. Suddenly, people, other kids started getting interested and they're saying, hey, you know, this is a great idea. And then another kid, this is a great idea. I want to do it too. I'm joining you. I'm joining you too. Another kid said, my, kids, my, my parents are alcoholics and drug addicts. I don't want to do it either. I'm joining you too. Before you knew it, this 14-year-old kid had 40 kids in a club in, a, in one of the roughest high schools around that was saying, we don't want to drink, we're not going to take drugs, and we're not going to have sex before marriage. And they were non-Christian kids. Because one kid had a discontent in his heart that says, something's wrong, and I want to make it right. I mean, what more can we do if we just listen to what's in our heart? I've got written here, the deep in God cries out to the deep in you. Many of us adjust to shallow lives. The deep cries out every now and again when we experience something that triggers it, but we quickly push it back down and live out the shallow and ignore the deep, remaining in the shallow waters of our lives and therefore never really fulfilling the destiny of God and purpose for our lives, at best only dabbling in it every now and again. You know, this song that I listen to, what can I do with my obsession, with the things I cannot see? What do I do with this obsession? What do I do with this passion? What do I do with this holy discontent? And then the chorus says, forever keep me burning. Keep me burning with the fire of your love. You know, when you turn that holy discontent over to God and God's love gets a hold of that, you'd be amazed what you can do. Let's look at just a couple of people here. Look at, let's look at Martin Luther King. This should be a nice picture of Martin up there any minute. Um, And just let me read something to you. Martin Luther King Jr. became famous because of what he couldn't stand. A pastor by occupation, he wound up being one of the greatest volunteers the world has ever known. The racial oppression he saw all around him in the United States in 1950s and 60s ripped him apart. He couldn't stand the whites-only signs on drinking fountains and bathrooms and doors to restaurants. He couldn't stand the fact that blacks by law were pushed to the back of the bus or forced to give up seats altogether so that white patrons could sit down. He couldn't stand the reality that his people were always found at the end of the receiving line for education, employment and housing opportunities. He wanted the lynching of black people to stop. He wanted segregation banished. He wanted justice to be served so that kids would grow up in a different world than the one that he was living in. One man. The day finally came when that which King couldn't stand simply got the best of him. The holy discontent he felt in the depths of his being brought him to the point where he must have said in the privacy of his own soul, God, that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. He had a Popeye moment and he launched into a movement toward racial equality. King lived the rest of his brief 39 years with revenished passion for seeing a new civilization ushered in. 
one characterised by non-violence, freedom and justice. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize at the University of Oslo in 1964 for his tireless efforts to that end. And during his acceptance speech, he said this, I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness for what for, for that forever confronts him with. You know, there's things that are, that are the way they are. There is an isness about things, but there is an oughtness. It is like this, but it ought to be like that. And someone has to reach for that eternal purpose that makes that come to pass. He was, I'll just... He eventually lost his life, we know that. He gave his whole heart, soul, body and his life taken out by a sniper. Sniper thought he could wipe out what King was doing but it evolved into one of the greatest legacies that a man could ever leave on earth because one man took his holy discontent and decided to do something about it. And what about Mother Teresa, another woman? There she is in Calcutta and she's teaching in this Catholic school and it's all nice and it's all nice in there, but beyond the gates, she keeps looking beyond the gates and she's seeing the poverty. She's seeing people dying in the streets without care, without anyone around them, without hospital care. She's seeing people just die in the streets. She can't stand it anymore. That's all I can stand. I can't stand anymore. I'm going out beyond the gates. Don't go beyond the gates, mother. It's dangerous out there. I'm going beyond the gates. I'm going out. She, you know the story of Mother Teresa. I mean, she just held them while they died. She set up hospitals. She set up places for the dying and the hurting and the diseased. And she was an icon of society and still is because one woman says, that's all I can stand. I can't stand anymore. Another woman present day, Heidi Baker. This woman is amazing. Her and her husband went to Africa. Uh, she's a, an American, very shy girl, brought up in a traditional church that didn't even believe in the Holy Spirit, but she knew that there was more. There was more that God had for her. And her, her and her husband went to Africa. They saw this house that was deserted and wondering what this house was. And they went over and had a look and there were like, I think there was about 10 kids orphans in there that had been left, this bomb-raided house had been left and the people that were caring for them had taken off and just left them. They had no food, they had nothing to eat, they were just left there to die, these little orphan children. And she says, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. And she sold everything. Her and her husband went over there and sold their whole lives into building orphanages. And now at this point in time, she sees God supernaturally provide food supernaturally she hands out bowls and the food appears in the plates for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of orphans and 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 she gets her life is threatened every day they try and kill her they bomb her shelters but she i can't stand it i've got to do something and she says her philosophy is just help one if you just do something for one that one will multiply heidi baker awesome woman of god what about billy graham Amazing man of God. What was it that, that propelled this man to give his whole life, his whole life to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because 
I'm sure that Billy Graham, from his messages, you can read that he just wants people to know that God loves them. He saw a world that didn't know that God loved them. And his lifetime message was, God loves you. God loves you. You listen to all his messages, it's in there. God loves you. God loves you. And people came to the altar because they knew that one man had stood up and said, that's all I can stand. I can't stand it anymore. They have to know that God loves them. This is Alice. This is Alice Mercy. Alice Mercy, we're going to the women's conference this week. She's going to be speaking there. Alice was a child in Uganda and the guerrillas were coming and they were, they were um, raiding the homes of the normal village people and they would raid the homes, they would kill everything that was in sight and they would take the young girls, 11, 12, 13-year-old girls, and take them so that they could become their um, incubators for, for um, growth. And so they would impregnate 11, 12, 13-year-old girls and they would beat them and they were just keeping them in these disgusting um, places. And the day that they came to Alice's school, she was only like 12 or 13, she rolled herself up in the carpet on the floor when she heard them coming and she watched out of the corner of the carpet as they slaughtered every child in her classroom and, 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 and took the young girls to be their wives. And she was just, that's all I can stand. I can't stand anymore. And they're saying, Alice, you need to get away from here before they come to get you. She said, I'm not going. I'm staying. Not only am I staying, I'm going to rescue those girls. I'm going to get them. Alice Mercy today has an incredible ministry where she has rescued. She's sent the word out, girls, if you can run away, just get to me. And she set up safe houses and C3. We support her. We, we pay for and we pay for building of these homes and, and supplies. There's a box at the back that we're going to take used and uh, and pre-loved bras because these girls don't can't even afford a bra, nursing bras and normal bras. If you've got a bra, you rip it off, <laughs> chuck it in that box, and uh, or bring one tonight. I'm going to take them down there this week, and they're just going to take all these bras back to these young girls that can't even have a, got a bra. Um, Gail, <laughs> burn the bra. No, don't burn the bra. Give it to Alice. Amazing, amazing woman of God, Alice Mercy. Um, and, you know, you might say, look, you know, I can hear what you're saying, Pastor Julie, like, but, you know, I'm not really a Mother Teresa. I'm not really a Martin Luther King Jr. I'm not, you know, Billy Graham. Come on, you know, they're special people. Alice Mercy, she's a special person. You're chosen, handpicked by God. We're just normal people, us. We don't, we're not called to, to do things, you know, like that. Well, just let me show you just one of those incredibly special people. This, yeah. Yeah. Now, here's a man with a holy discontent. He had a holy discontent that not many people serve the house of God. 
Pastors, I can see you working so hard, there's no one to help you. When we first pioneered this church, he came into the church, he looked at us, that holy discontent rose up inside of you and said, Pastors, you work too hard. You shouldn't be putting the bins out. You shouldn't be sweeping the floors. You shouldn't be putting the chairs out, because we did. We did everything. Pastor, I'm here to help you. I can't stand it anymore. I can't stand you killing yourself when you're supposed to be preaching the gospel. I'm going to do something about it. And still to this day, after 13 years of serving us faithfully, he still worked. He was here on Saturday all day. That, yesterday, put that thing up. You know what I mean? I just ring up. I ring up during the week. We're away. And I just go, Frank, I'm really worried about this whole mother's thing. We've got five breastfeeding women. Where are they going to feed? Where are they going to change nappies? We've got to do it now. Can you do something? Leave it with me. That was the answer. Then I messaged during the week, is anything happening about that? I've got it all in hand. Just stay away. Have a good holiday. It's in hand. Came back yesterday thinking, oh, I wonder if he did anything. Came down, had a look and went, oh, God is so good. A hero in our midst. A person with holy discontent. You know, we, you know, when you say, like, okay, what's a holy discontent? Like, we all get moved by things like tsunamis, right? And you go, oh, there's my holy discontent. You know, every time there's a tsunami, you know, I'm just going to give my money. I'm going to go maybe over there and build some hearts and, you know. No, they're cause-driven. That's things that are cause-inspired action. We all do those stuff. There's a tsunami everybody gives. Everybody feels moved. Everybody moves into action. That's cause. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking right now about something that is, is constantly stirring inside of you, a cause or a problem that literally grabs you by the throat and will not let you go. It just grabs you and won't let you go. And it causes you to have a burning bush experience in your soul where you feel like God himself is inviting you into an intentional, personalized partnership with him to renovate reality. See, it happened to Sarah. She was radically born again and had a burning bush experience all at once and said, this is what my life is about. This is what it's all been about. I've got to go. I can't stand it anymore that these people are trying to search for truth with all their scientific jargon when really the truth is right there. I've got to take the truth out and I've got to make it real. God says this, this is why I made you and wired you up like this. This is why I allowed mountaintop reason for rejoicing times in your life as well as the pits of despair to sneak in. None of your tears or anguish will be wasted, says God. I plan to use every ounce of what you've been through for good in a particular specific area. I know you are devastated by the same problem that grieves me. And I just happen to need someone exactly like you to help me solve this. That's what God says. Amen. That's what God says. I remember when Andrew came to me and he, and he had this holy discontent stirring. 
And I'm glad it happened before he married my daughter. I'm glad that he had his burning bush experience first. And it kind of happened like that. He had a burning bush experience and then he fell in love with Jilly. Good order for it to happen. And uh, I might not have been as happy about it if it hadn't happened that way. But he came to us and he, this, this guy, you know, doesn't, he wasn't moved by a lot of things. Pretty together guy, pretty solid guy, knows where he wants to go, knows what he wants to do. Not real emotional, not really moved by stuff. But he comes, he's shaking, he's crying. You know what happened to me. I had this vision. And I saw that whole area over there. I saw a thousand youth. I saw them. I saw a thousand youth. He wasn't running the youth group at the time. He, he wasn't even interested. But he had this burning bush experience and this holy discontent inside of him. We've got to raise a youth group that can reach a thousand kids. Just got to do it. Pastor Phil, Pastor Julie, what can I do with this? And we sat down with Luke, who was running the youth group at that time, said, this is what's happened to Andrew. He goes, I'm partnering with him. If he's seen that, I want to see it with him. And these two forged an alliance that it's amazing. Look at it. It's happening now. We're walking in someone's holy discontent being worked out. You know, with me, my holy discontent was that I wanted to see Jesus manifested in his church. I wanted to see the church stop playing games, stop putting on shows, stop being fake, and really come into relationship, intimacy with Jesus and be his people and go out and do his work with his heart. That's my holy discontent and that's my life message. Phil's holy discontent just can't stand to see people not saved. He just cannot stand it. I mean, I had to, we had a massage while we were away. The kids gave us this two days away for my 50th birthday in a resort. And it was beautiful and there was a whole massage package and facial and all this stuff, both of us. And so I said, I said and Jesse said before we go, make sure Dad doesn't talk when the girls massage him. He's got to relax and enjoy it. He can't stand it. He's saying, after the massage, you come out. He said, I'm so tense. I said, why are you tense? You just had a massage. He said, because I had to shut up and this girl's going to hell and I couldn't tell her. And like... <laughs> I was, you know, I had this vow of see, I had this vow of silence, and on this, she's massaging me, and I'm feeling that this girl needs to know Jesus, and I'm, I, uh, and I need another massage. So, that's his thing, you know. And think of Jilly, you know, what was Jilly's? Jilly's thing growing up, she always wanted to see worship to God in the house of God being the most beautiful thing, being so real, being so connected, being so anointed. You know, at 14 years old, when I started to talk to her about the worship team, and she started to see the vision of God. By 18, she was running the worship team at 18 years of age. Now, at 24 years of age, we have the most incredible worship team. Amen. Because one girl's holy discontent says, we've got to have good worship for God. It's got to be great. It's got to be beautiful. Ordinary people, ordinary stuff. Jamie and Vicky said, come on, what's happening with Kids Church? We just really want to get in there and touch the kids. We need to touch kids. You know, Jamie feels that she's called overseas to orphanages, has been since she's three years old, saying she's going to go to Africa one day. And I keep saying, I keep putting it off. And I keep saying, yeah, when you get older, when you get bigger, 
when you, you know, maybe one day, and I said, just why not? And she goes, well, why not start with the kids right here? If I want to touch the kids in Africa one day, what about the kids right here? And they're just doing great things there. And I think of Tim and Louise, this holy discontent inside of them. There's kids outside of the church. There's kids that parents will never come to church who are out there that need to know Jesus. They're out there. And Tim and Louise went out and they took the church out of the four walls and they, they do, you know, big noise, big, big things for kids where kids come and get saved. And then they saw these kids that have just got like one or two parents in jail and these kids that are going to go through the cycle. They're going to end up in jail themselves. Let's break the cycle, the holy discontent. Let's do something about it. And Tim and Louise wrote a program to go in called Camp Works and go in and get these kids and do a camp with them and minister to these kids. And now the government's got interested in it. They're getting government funding. They want them to do these things all over the state because they're saying, this is amazing. This stuff is breaking the cycle of criminals in our nation because of holy discontent. See, you probably don't know this stuff about these normal people that work the buttons up there. You don't know that they're actually heroes in the faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? And I think about Katrina, you know, you just see her buzzing around, buzzing around. You don't know the holy discontent inside of her is that she wants every person in this church to be loved and nurtured. She's got a heart like a shepherd and she cries over you. Her heart breaks. When she writes those letters, there's tear stains on those letters. Why haven't you been to church? Katrina misses you. And she's just like the shepherd's heart. Her holy discontent is that everybody... Is none's missing. There's none missing. Where are the sheep? Where are the sheep? We none missing. None missing. Garth, you know, his holy discontent is that people need to be equipped and connected. We need to connect these people together, and we need to equip them for the work of the ministry. They need to be taught. They need to know when they get saved. They have to be taught. They have to know what they're doing. Phil and Fleur. When I think of those mighty people of God. You know, what is it? They've got to see the house prospering. You wouldn't believe how much these people... We would not be here today without Phil and Fleur. This church wouldn't be here. That's true. And they hate me for saying that because they don't want people to know it. But they have given more money to this house than everybody combined. They are, they, literally, this church is here because of them. And God, the holy discontent inside of them, God's got to have a house. God's got to... We've got, to, we've got to see this house prosper. Hazel, you know, she's just like tirelessly working over the finances, working those figures, working the stuff out, meeting with people, meeting with banks, doing this, doing that, on the phone, on the phone, on the phone, on the phone. She's supposed to be retired, but she's there because there's a holy discontent inside of her that says, I've got to see this happen. And she's got a holy discontent inside of her that she says, I've got to see these pastors on it. They've sowed their finances, their life into this. I'm going to see them prosper in their latter years and be on it. That's pretty good. I like that. I like that one, Hazel. Hang on to that one. And then, so I see, and I see Roz, this holy discontent. You know, she's just a new Christian. And she just goes, you know, I love serving people food. And I say, Roz, can you do a few things, you know, for the visiting ministry? She walks in with these platters. They're just dripping in the mouth, looking at them, just the presentation alone. And then you taste it, and it's like, you've got to go on that chef show. I mean, that, what's that chef show called? That master chef. And she's just the master chef, and she just, lo- and she just goes, oh, I love it. I just love it. I love it. 
I love it when you eat and you love my food. I love presenting things. And so, okay, I can do the kitchen. Okay, I can do that. I can do that. And there's a holy discontent inside of her that she wants to see people blessed and served. What about Gail? She's got this holy discontent that everybody should be encouraged. Everybody should feel special. Everyone should be greeted. Everyone should feel like they're part of this family. No one should gossip. Everybody should be unified. And if she hears anyone gossip, she'll come and slap you up the side of the head because we're a family and we're stuck together and, you know, this is what makes us. You know, my Jessie came to me, well, I just saw this thing on Facebook. I said, what's that? And she said, oh, Mum, I've got this passion. You know, I see so many young girls, 18, 20, around that age, that just, you know, that young people, that they want to go out and have fun. But they, there's nowhere to have fun that, is, that you don't have to get smashed or picked up or, you know, that you don't have to be in this satanic environment of Sodom and Gomorrah just because you want to go out and have a dance or have some fun. So she said, I want to start this kind of little group called Young and Free. And I want to supervise some outings for these young people that we can go and do stuff and we don't have to do this crazy stuff and go to nightclubs and get smashed to have fun. That I can tell these Christian kids, you can be young and you can be free. It's okay. Christianity is not going to put you in a box you can express yourself, but, you know, there's a, there's a way to do it. I love that. You know, Pauline, oh, I just, you know, I'm quickly going through this. Like, everybody here is amazing, but, like, Pauline, there she is. She's got this holy discontent. What is it? She sees how much we're paying for graphic art. You know, we're paying hundreds. Of, every time we put a conference on, you know, there's this big bill that comes in for graphic artists and for, for the stuff that we do and everything what we do. Look all this stuff. It all costs money. And so Pauline says, no, I think I can do something about that. I think I've got a bit of a, a bit of a gift maybe. And so she just starts to have a little twiddle with some computers and goes, what about this pastor? I go, that's amazing. She goes, well, do you think I've got, I think you've got something. So she goes and enrolls in TAFE and does a graphic artist course at TAFE and everything that you see around this place that these pictures that she made for me, I just said, can you give me a picture of Mother Teresa? No, it's not just Mother Teresa. Just put Mother Teresa up there again. Yeah, please. It's not just, I just said, I just want a photo of Mother Teresa. People can see her face. No, she gives me Mother Teresa. She gives me the world coming out of her. She gives me the bluest colors. She gives me this. I mean, look at that. Mother Teresa would jump out of a grave to see that, I'm sure. These are normal people. Normal people. You know, maybe you're serving on a volunteer team. Maybe you say, why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why, why are you on the greeting team? Like, why do these people stand at the door and say hello to people? What, what makes them turn up early to church, put on a funny T-shirt, and stand there with, with things that they're saying, good morning, good morning, good morning, and they don't get paid for it. They hardly get any accolades for it. They're just at the back of the church. They're doing their job. What makes people do that? You know, maybe you turned up to church one day and no one said hello. And there's this holy discontent inside of you. You know what? I'm going to say hello to every person that walks through that door. I'm going to be part of the greeting team. Amen? You know, maybe you're on the worship team. You say, why do people do that? How many rehearsals do they do? And they're here. Do you know no one gets paid? No one gets paid here. This whole team, they turn up, they rehearse, they play every service. They're here early 
doing sound checks. They're here at, when you're still in bed in the mornings. They're here. Why do they do that stuff? Maybe they tried to give their gifts to the world and they just felt this holy discontent that, hey, this isn't doing much. You know, I'm giving this, but I'm not seeing much fruit. But when I play for God in church and I see people saved and I see people worshipping God and I see people being touched by God, then I know I'm doing what God's called me to do. Amen? Maybe maintenance and cleaning team. You know, why do people turn up here on Saturdays, give up their Saturday just to come and mow lawns all day? I mean, Mark is on that tractor. You cannot get him off. Yeah, and you, and you know, you might just say, oh, he just wants to get away from the missus for a day and all, all the screaming grandkids that he's inheriting. Oh, I know, I know. No, this man has a holy discontent that the house of God should look great. And he has a holy discontent that he knows that the pastor, if he doesn't do it, Pastor Phil will be on there. He knows if he doesn't do it, Phil will be on that track because he would be. Wouldn't he, Mark? And he's been there many, many times. It's fantastic. Deacons, ushers, catchers, altar ministry. Why, why do people stand there and say, oh, I'll be a catcher. I'll stand there and lug all these bodies as God touches them. Why? Maybe they got dropped once upon a time and realised that someone needs to do this job properly. <laughs> Maybe there's this holy discontent because they bonked their head and some fat person fell on them on the altar call. Say, so somebody's got to do this. New Christians, why do you want to be on the new Christians team, you know? Maybe there's something inside of you that says, I've got to make sure that these babies get born again properly and that they know what they're doing. I'm passionate about it. Sound, what are they doing up there? Twiddling knobs every week, playing with things. Why are they doing that stuff? Because they've got a passion. There's some holy discontent inside of them that says God's house has to function. Multimedia, news, keeping people informed, connected. Why do you want to be a connect group leader? Go, why? Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to open your house to all these strangers? It's so, you know, that goes without saying with Gail. Because she's good at it, Luke says. <laughs> yeah, of course she's good at it. Yeah, that's great. And kitchen, people serving, you know. I heard that Margaret has been doing the rosters in kitchen, you know. And she's just like a brand new Christian. She's out there doing the rosters and getting things in order because that's not one of Roz's strengths. And Margaret said, oh, I've got a strength in there. I'll do that. What about Ali and Nick? You know, they see that there's starving people right here in Sydney. You know, there's people starving overseas. But what about the people that are in Sydney? What about the homeless in Sydney? Who's feeding them? So they make a few phone calls. They find out there's a bus you can pick up. There's a van you can pick up. They'll give you all the food. And you just got to go around, drive around and feed the poor. They said, we're in that. They're down there taking teams from our church down and feeding the homeless in Sydney because they had a holy discontent and they did something about it. That's great. And missions, Stephen and Whitten, you know, they're over there. Our beautiful friends, they had a beautiful family. They had a nice church. They had everything going on for them. They go over to Thailand. They see there's no youth being raised up in Thailand because of their culture. It's all the older people are honoured. The young people are not recognised. There was no young ministry. There's no young pastors. There's no young worship leaders. And so they sold their house picked up their lives with no promise of wages or anything like that, went to a strange country, set up shop and said, we're going to raise a generation of youth 
in this nation to pastor churches and to pioneer and birth churches. They're over there selling jewellery, like we sell their jewellery here, to make ends meet, and we support them as well. God is looking for someone just like you, someone who gets wrecked on earth by the things that wreck him in heaven. I assure you there is a holy discontent with your name on it, and he is ready for both of you to do something about it. Now, I'm just going to ask the usher team to just hand out some papers quickly. We're going to do this as quickly as we can. There's some little white pieces of paper. If you need a pen, put up your hand. What I want you to do is just close your eyes for a minute. Lisa can come on the keyboard. And I want you to write down on this paper what you think your holy discontent is. What is that that stirs inside of you? And then we're going to come, we're going to put them in this box, and as you put in the box, I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to pray over these and believe that God is going to raise up great things in this church in Jesus' name. Does that make sense?